It's 12 o'clock. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. My name is Duduzi Ramela in for Jeremy Mags this afternoon. Hello to you. MoneyWeb at Midday, your 30-minute information pack on the latest news headlines. Coming up, the Hawks have highlighted their successes in fighting commercial crimes. We speak to outer Stephanie Fick about the work being done and how effective the body is or has been. We take a look also at South Africa's land restitution program and ask whether it is bearing fruit. Change starts now. That's a new political party and not just a phrase. It has launched its election manifesto. We speak to party leader Roger Jardine on their plans. And we take a look at the premier of Gauteng, Banyazali Sufi, yesterday today delivered the state of the province address amid some action we'll speak to actionists say they are less than impressed and they'll tell us why and not just about the scuffle that also broke out and a 13 year old boy accused of shooting a school principal is facing attempted murder charges we'll speak to teaching union naptosa about the plight of teachers in some of the country's schools you're listening to money web at midday So the South African Police Services Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, known as the Hawks, say over 200 people have been convicted and sentenced for a number of crimes in just three months. Hawks Head Lieutenant General Godfrey Lebea revealed that for the reporting period of the third quarter of 2023-2024, they focused on priority offences such as fraud, corruption, narcotics-related crimes and illicit possession of precious metals and diamonds. Stephanie Fick is with the organization Undoing Tax Abuse, known to you and I as Alta. She joins us now to assess some of the successes. Stephanie, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. So the majority of convictions secured were for fraud, suggesting that we have a problem in the country where fraud is concerned. The Hawks revealing that they've made some 156 arrests in just three months. Is this reflected in the work that you do? No. So let's start off by congratulating them. I think it is, you know, under certain circumstances, one has to celebrate the successes. But I I think, you know, maybe because of the trust deficit between civil society and and, and government, one wonders if, you know, these numbers, um, has it got to do with saying that crime is not a problem? And then I want to say, but go to the people on the street, because I think that they do not see the numbers that are talked about, Mm. you know, behind a podium, the impact of that on their ordinary lives. Now, yes, the Hawks um, does priority crimes, but, you know, in the ordinary um, citizen's mind, does it really matter? You know, you walk Mm. down the street, you get robbed. How many people are safe? Is women and children safe, et cetera, et cetera? So I would have liked to see more corruption, um, you know, cases and maybe share those successes because it doesn't appear to be enough. I would have liked to see, you know, what is happening with our state capture cases and then more high-flying individuals. And what I mean by that, maybe it's the wrong word to use, is, you know, not just the people that are zamazamas. Yes, mm-hmm. they must be arrested. But who is the person in charge? So your 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 the higher level individuals that needs to also be brought to book. Yeah, the masterminds essentially. The masterminds. Because we heard yes. from um, General Lebea saying that over and above arrests and convictions, in collaboration with the Asset Forfeiture Unit, uh, some ninety two orders were secured with a monetary value of thirty nine million rand. What should we understand about that? 
Well, again, it's congratulations. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we could get 39 million rand back. But again, the question is, is it enough? I think that the main problem, not just with the Hawks, because we can't isolate the Hawks. We need to see it as, you know, the, the SAPS in, 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 in general. And what is the impact? So, you know, you can't get this feeling that if they, um, you know, forfeit that amount of money, how much more can we do? Do they have enough resources to investigate and to forfeit enough of the of 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 the assets out there in order to reflect the problem we see? in South Africa. You speak of resources um, and they spoke of 129 people being found guilty of 175,626 charges related to commercial crimes. I mean, that's a lot of charges, right? And that's just these 129 people. And then you've got not related, but the likes of Operation Chanela, where almost every weekend people are arrested. And so when you speak of capacity, what do we need to understand about this body and then the prosecution side of it? Do we have enough capacity, rather? Because we have to look at this holistically, no? Mm. Does the Hawks or do the Hawks have capacity? It is a quick, good question, and I think the complaints have been, even in the ID that's part of the NPA, is do they have the capacity to investigate these forensic fraud fraud cases? Do they have the capacity to follow the money? Because money laundering is a problem, and not just within our borders, international money laundering. Do we have the capacity, and do we just have the capacity, you know, to investigate, just investigate these priority crimes, but also the capacity to deal with the high crime rate we have in South Africa? And that is but one part of the whole process, because as you've rightly said, you know, the police is supposed to investigate, but then the NPA needs to prosecute. So if one of those institutions is not properly resourced with, you know, people as a resource and also your investigative capacity, then you're not going to get anywhere. But, you know, with without being too negative, you know, if you look at that briefing, a lot of the, the um, accused also pleaded guilty, which, mm. which helps. Um, if they are faced with an overwhelming amount of evidence, they do plead guilty, which then in terms of resources do not take a court, you know, three, four, five years to get someone found guilty. But all of that takes human beings um, with enough capacity to deal with these types of crimes. Stephanie, thank you so much for your contribution this afternoon. Stephanie Fink is with Alta. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. So six years ago, the Department of Agriculture, Land and Rural Reform commissioned a study to evaluate the socioeconomic impact of the restitution program. That is where land is concerned. Minister Toko Didiza yesterday delivered the findings of the report, which revealed that land dispossession not only has a devastating economic consequence, but has a fatal consequence um, for the dispossessed family unit. We speak to Bulelwa Mabasa. She's with Worksman's. Uh, she's the head of land reform there and a member of the presidential advisory panel on land reform and the author of My Land Obsession. She joins us to take a look at this report. Thank you so much, ma'am, for your time this afternoon. What do we know about how the study was conducted? Well, we know that um, the study was conducted having taken into account a total of 2,664 households and uh, 3,378 individuals. Um, so, yeah, so, so and that it was actually commissioned 
um, in partnership with the South African Labor Development Research Unit at the University of Cape Town, as well as the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation, Mm -hmm. um, which commenced in 2018. Essentially, what was the big idea? Well, um, I mean, this is not uh, official in any way, but I think from my interactions with many other minds and um, leading voices in restitution, Mm. there was this thought and idea that restitution doesn't work, it's too difficult, it's difficult for land claimants to prove their rights to, to land. And there was this debate informally whether or not restitution should be kind of... Um, you know, uh, set aside in favor of redistribution, which does not uh, require that people prove their right to land. So that was kind of what was happening in the, um, you know, if you like, corridors of the think tanks around whether restitution is still uh, a worthy, uh, you know, kind of a process uh, to follow. But I think what we can see and glean from the study um, is that the it, it, you know the effects of land dispossession have not only affected you know economic pros- prosperity of the dispossessed, but that it's also disintegrated families that have been uh, forcibly removed, and that the big thing is looking at the psychological well-being and the hopelessness of those dispossessed persons and their descendants in the context of land justice, um, and and really I think for me. The the, the 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 important thing uh, as an outcome is that uh, the study says that the dispossession of these communities and 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 people that have been dispossessed has also resulted in cognitive um, uh, you know the, the cognitive cap- uh, capabilities and decision making abilities being diminished because it is so because of such a psychological warfare. Or what dispossession does, not only to, you know, the economic well-being, but also to the psychological well-being of, of, of these families. So I think the upshot of it is how important restitution is within the, um, the, uh, the, the, the context of, of, of land reform. And how is it going, right? Because the Restitution of Land Rights Act of 1994 is among the first laws that were passed by this democratically elected government in 2024, 30 years later. Uh, how would you assess it? How have we done? How are we faring, given the consequences so you've highlighted? It, so let me put it to you into context. The first land claim matter that I came across as an attorney in practice um, came across my desk in 2006. We are sitting now in 2024 where we are still... Uh, you know, having this land claim that I was, you know, that I interacted with early on in my career that still has not been concluded, and that is not one of uh, one of them. Hmm. What the what the minister has told us that since the inception of the land restitution program, eighty three thousand and seventy seven claims have been settled. You know, between nineteen ninety five and twenty twenty three, we are told that this is ninety four percent of all those claims. But when you look into practice and you look at real people beyond the statistics, many of the land claims that we are dealing with are far from being concluded. Some of them have just, you know, kind of not not yet mm-hmm. even been investigated. We see a lot of a lot of them that are not no longer traceable. So one, uh, you know, it begs the question of uh, as, as to whether or not the statistics around 94% of them being concluded. Um, does it include those that have that are not being traced, that are not traceable, that kind of 
uh, disappear off the system? Does mm-hmm. it include those that um, include many, many disputes? So in other words, once the land has been given or financial compensation has been given, we know the many disputes that happen within communal property association post being given the land. So, you know, it, it raises questions around whether or not we should take comfort in a statistic that says 94% of them have been concluded in the light of what I've just described. And that's just it, 94% of what? Is there an inventory that tells us that we've got, well, the cases of dispossession, mm. there's 10, and we have dealt mm. with five, and we've got three to go? Do you know what I mean? So yeah. 94% yeah. of what? What are we working on? Do we have an inventory? Yeah. So if you recall, when President Zuma tried to amend this legislation in 2014, which was also to extend the deadline for the submission of claims, that amendment also made provision for a land register that would be public, that would that would be accessible, that would tell the public this has been the land that has been um, claimed, this is the land that has been um, given, and has been given to so-and-so. Unfortunately, that 2014, uh, 2014 amendment was subsequently struck down by the Constitutional Court mm-hmm. as having been invalid and unlawful because um, proper procedures weren't followed. So we still don't have a register or, an, an, or some kind of a audit or publicly available information that will tell the public, um, you know, what status a land claim has, except the only thing, the only thing that we have is that once a land claim has been investigated and it's kind of preliminary or prima facie valid, we see it in the government gazette. But the government gazettes are not going to tell us of those claims that have mm. been submitted but have not yet been investigated. So that's still a big lacuna in, 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 our, in, our, in our law that um, it does not give any certainty to the public or landowners or even land claimants in mm. terms of who has, given, who has submitted a land claim where. We still right. don't have a system that is reliable, that is transparent. Bulelwa, thank you so much for your contribution this afternoon. Bulelwa Mabasa is Worksman's Head of Land Reform, a member of the Presidential Advisory Panel on Land Reform and the author of My Land Obsession. Thank you. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. New political kid on the block, Change Starts Now, launched its election charter, which seeks to create jobs, tax the wealthy, fight corruption and fix the state of state-owned enterprises, among other things. Roger Jardine leads Change Starts Now and he joins us for more on the charter. Mr. Jardine, thank you very much for your time. Let's start with the plan that you say is quite straightforward and you've got six points there. Let's start with the first plan of collaborating with business and other partners to create new jobs, especially for the youth. What is your understanding of what has disallowed for this to happen in the first place? Well, I think this plan is based on the fact that a number of these ideas have been around. They just simply haven't been implemented. For example, the National Development Plan that was published in 2012 said that if we increase infrastructure investment as a percentage of GDP to 30%, we should be able to reduce unemployment. It is 2024. We're sitting at 14.5%. We modeled what's possible based on what's happened previously, so it's not like it hasn't been done before. We arrived at a 22% um, infrastructure investment to GDP, and we figured out we could create 5 million jobs if we kept to that plan. Now, what has prevented this from happening has been sheer political will and the management uh, to do this. 
uh, we're very clear that by bringing the best and the brightest, we can actually achieve this. If you look at something like load shedding, for example, I think there's consensus that by fixing ESCOM, we can actually increase, just doing that alone, can lift GDP from 1% to about 2.5%. So there are lots of levers in the system, and this, this manifesto really focuses on those levers. And its starting point is, we will not be able to sustain socially guaranteed protections in terms of the Constitution at the current rate that our national income is hemorrhaging. And so we've introduced a temporary three-year plan to raise 500 billion rand so that we can start with this project almost immediately. And then you speak of fixing broken public and economic infrastructure, including ESCOM that you've mentioned, Transnet, Prasa and Water. How so? There are those who argue that these entities, more so state-owned entities, should be privatized. Is that the view of change starts now? Look, I think it's quite clear that what's been happening in our state-owned enterprises is not sustainable, and that goes to the heart of the governance of these institutions. We've estimated that simply by fixing the management and the governance and getting to a very clear underlying profitability of these key SOEs, we can leverage up to a trillion rand of private sector capital to help South Africa on this journey. So the issue isn't straightforward privatization. For example, we've also said in the manifesto that we think a landlord type model where the private sector can take over some of the functions and uh, the buildings, the concessions, etc., and hand back after a 30-year period so that it doesn't quite leave the ownership of the state, but the private sector steps in in this time of urgent need for capital and management and gets the job done. Currently, we know that ships are avoiding the Suez Canal. Mm. They're passing around the Cape, and we're just unable to service them because of the poor state of our ports. We need urgent interventions. It's not going to come from the public sector in the time horizon required. And so we have to think more broadly and more creatively about how we leverage private sector capital and expertise. And then, Mr. Jardine, you speak of ensuring accountability and protecting constitutional rights, but you're also looking at exploring comprehensive social security solutions. On the comprehensive social security solutions, what is the party speaking of? Look, the social security solutions are constitutionally enshrined, so no government can say that if you don't vote for us, you won't get them. The debate is often around, can South Africa afford these things? Our plan, which is uh, centered around an economic strategy to facilitate our ability to provide those social services. So let's take public hospitals, for example. Mm. 90% of our people go to public hospitals. It's their first and ultimate resort for healthcare. And we know that the experience there is a very undignified one. We see budget cuts. We, We run out of medicine and linen and food and that sort of thing. And so these economic levers that we are proposing will boost our economic growth, probably over the medium to long term also bring down uh, taxes payable. And uh, by freeing up our balance sheet, we should be able to provide these uh, public goods to people. That's a very important one because uh, sometimes you'll go to a public health institution and you get to wait for four months before you can be attended to. And then there's the issue of corruption at 
all sectors of the South African population, it would seem. It is often said that the fish rots from the head. And so, Mr. Jardine, there are some who hold the view or who are worried that yourself, you've been CEO of Avenge Group for five years and we saw collusion and corruption when it came to World Cup Stadia. And so what do you say to people who say, well, can we trust or who ask, can we trust that indeed change starts now, will bring the clean, good governance that South Africa desperately needs? You know, when I joined Avenge, the World Cup Stadia contracts had been awarded already and the stadiums were under construction. The issue came to my attention. I think this is an issue of leadership. I didn't set up a commission of inquiry. I went straight to the heart of the problem. I went to the competition commission, had lots of internal inquiries. And by the time I left Avenge, this matter had been comprehensively dealt with. And so I think it's an issue of leadership. It's of leading by example. And when you're a leader, you don't avoid the difficult issues, which is exactly what I did. And I think for the team around me and for the future, this corruption is an issue that is eating the soul of our country. We just have to not only say what we're going to do, we must actually be seen to be doing what we say we're going to do. Thank you very much, sir, for your time at this afternoon. Roger Jardine leads Change Starts Now. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Dive deeper into the South African Budget 2024 with MoneyWeb's inclusive webinar. Join industry titans, including MoneyWeb's editor, Reik van Niekerk, Annabel Bishop, Investec's chief economist, and Keith Engel, CEO of the South African Institute of Tax, as they decode Finance Minister Ino Kotongwana's plans. Don't miss out on this critical discussion. Tune in on Thursday, the 22nd of February from 11.15 a.m. to 12 p.m. You can register now at moneyweb.co.city. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. It's 22 minutes after 12 o'clock. Let's take a look at this now. Less talk, more work. You would have heard these words mentioned by the Gauteng Premier Panyaza Lissoufi a few times last night when he delivered the State of the Province Address. Energy or a lack thereof, crime prevention, revenue collection and the township economy were just some of the themes that featured in the address that sought to outline how his office would restore the City of Gold to its former shining glory. Opposition Party Action SA is less than convinced with the plans outlined, calling them empty promises. Funzing Gobeni is Action SA Gauteng Provincial Chairperson, and he joins us now to expand on this. Thank you very much, sir, for your time this afternoon. You are less than impressed, maybe just for the purpose of time. Let's take a look at the issue of revenue collection, more so when it comes to the city of Johannesburg. What do we need to know about the state of finances of the municipality? Yeah, no, I mean, um, and it's not only the city of Johannesburg. I mean, um, the metros... Um, are really disappointing in terms of revenue collection. But they are also more disappointing in terms of spending their conditional grant. Um, you know, so it's something that the, 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 the Premier did mention, and uh, I think even the uh, MEC of Cocta also mentioned. But what is lacking is um, it's the intervention from, uh, from the province. You know, and we will all know that um, we had challenges with uh, municipalities like Mfuleni, um, they had uh, previously intervened at Mfuleni, and uh, to this day, uh, Mfuleni is actually even worse now. So we, 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 what we are picking up is that there are plans. There are, you know, uh, plans that are quite impressive that uh, can actually make a difference, but they are not being implemented maybe because of the lack of political will.
and uh, maybe a focus that is uh, uh, somewhere else than on the basics that needs to drive us forward. Plans such as, could the economic development corridors be one of them? Yeah, I mean, um, economic corridors, um, they, they, they've been there. I mean, we have had um, uh, the special zones in uh, in Twani, for example, that uh, that is operating. We have had the OR Tambo special zone as well. Um, we need to see um, those special zones creating more work um, for our youth and uh, for all our unemployed. But at the moment, we, we, we don't see that. You know, we, we want to see more of, 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 of young people being employed. But you see, even the... The economic zones themselves, um, they will tell you that they are unable to uh, produce uh, in terms of productivity what they need to do because of issues of load shedding, you know, because of issues of, uh, of the railway uh, system that has collapsed and because of roads that, uh, that still needs to be redeveloped. So there are all those challenges that are hindering progress and are hindering economic growth in our province. And I, I, I think uh, the Premier uh, lacked, you know, death in terms of addressing those matters. In fact, I was looking at his speech. Um, uh, he only mentioned the, the GDP once in his, uh, in his in his speech. And if you if we are really serious about uh, growing the economy, you know, uh, dealing with um, the poverty and uh, creating more work, we need to focus more on how are we going to turn around the economic growth of the province. Funzi Ngoben is Gauteng Provincial Chairperson. Thank you very much, sir, for Action Essay. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. So the past few days have been dominated by this very disturbing development. A 13-year-old boy appearing at the Germiston Magistrates Court on Monday. He stands accused of planning and carrying out an attack on his school principal. It is alleged that the grade 6 pupil through a WhatsApp group targeted three educators, but the principal was the only one to be shot. It's alleged that he did not give his father his school diary to sign because he's also supposed to sign and was subsequently punished by his parent when the teachers brought his performance to the attention of his guardian. The pupil faces attempted murder charges and his father has since been arrested and charged with negligent safekeeping of a gun. What does this speak to more so? What teachers are faced with? Basil Manuel is with a teacher union, Naptosa. So Basil, thank you very much for your time. There are some 225 high-risk schools identified by the Department of Education in Gauteng. This particular school, Primrose, was not one of them. And so what is your understanding of what happened? Good afternoon, Julian. Thanks for having me. Yes, I want to confirm this is not uh, a high-risk school, and in fact, it has a very good management team, and they've done a sterling job, and the community will speak to that. Even the local police will speak to that. There have been no issues there. However, to do it is true that many of our children take the example from the broader community, mm-hmm. where violence seems to be the right response to anything that they don't agree with. And this is brought into the school. After all said and done, the school is a microcosm of the community in which it is. Tragically, because we don't have any early warning systems in schools, we don't have guidance counselors, as an Mm. example. When a teacher sees a problem developing, to tap somebody on the shoulder to say, just look into this one. We don't have that. And that leaves us with a great deficit, particularly if you think about the larger class sizes. And so it is very much up to the teacher to be the diagnostician, to look into it further, consult with the principal, call the parent, and so on, and things fall through the cracks. Hmm. And this is one of those things that fell through the cracks. uh, 
uh, the school did know that the youngster was problematic. They did co- uh, consult the parents. They did try to do certain things. But unfortunately, of course, things got out of control because there was nobody paying specific attention to the child. Is that fair to say, Basil, because this is a double whammy, right? So you've got someone that has been hurt. You've got a parent that is now in prison when he tried to discipline his child. Yes, corporal punishment is not allowed in South Africa anymore. But now, how how much bigger is this crack that this child is going to fall through? He's 13 year old. No system can accommodate him. Who does he go to when he comes out of this institution? What to do in such a situation? And that is why, Dudu, I'm making reference specifically to the psychological assistance that guidance counselors mm. and, and the like tend, uh, are, are trained to give. In the absence of that, we haven't intervened at the right time, simply because nobody could and nobody had the time. And falling through the cracks uh, sounds it's so simple to say, but it's actually a huge indictment yeah. on the system itself. Because we've created this, and this is one of a number of youngsters. I'm eternally grateful that the principal wasn't killed, not only for his sake and his family's mm. sake, but also for this youngster's sake, because this could be a very, very different uh, uh, story. And, of course, the life chances would have changed even uh, for, for, for a much worse uh, way than what we are currently speaking of. But it is an indictment on, on, on the system. Is it an indictment as well on us as a society? Every now and again, you get these stories that will just leave your heart beating a little bit faster, right? But is it a mirror that is being held up to show us who we are as a society? Is that even a fair question to ask? It's a difficult question to ask, but I think I started uh, alluding to that when I, when I said that our children take their examples from the broader community. And of course... A community is uh, demonstrating in a number of uh, areas uh, all the wrong things. And these get picked up, even in good areas, even in fantastic Mm. schools. uh, This does come filtering through. And unless we have a way to intervene. Now, of course, I've heard uh, somebody question why the teachers didn't pick this up and why. It's almost impossible in the sheer number we are talking about. But added to that, we don't want our schools to look like your proverbial prison yard, where you are shaken down before you come in, etc. That's not the safe haven that the ideal school is supposed to mirror. But I recognize that in difficult-to-teach-at places, where there are very, very difficult schools, that may have to be a type of solution. But it does not create the right picture and sense for a child that this is my safe haven, but they're shaking me down before I go into the school. Mm. Is it worth considering banning social media for specific age groups, or are we being impossible? I think we're being impossible. I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's like you would remember uh, a few years ago, well, not, well, quite a few years ago, when cell phones first mm. made the appearance, schools tried that. Right. And how successful were they? I don't know mm-hmm. uh, what what your particular age would be, but you would remember it as well, either as a learner mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. as a, a young adult. And we tried all sorts of things. I was a teacher at the time, and we had some of the craziest things happen. Eventually, 
You've got to embrace it, but you've got to use it properly. And you've got to guide the use of it. There are so many things that social media can be right for and so many things that it can be really terrible for. Absolutely. Basil, thank you so much, sir, for your time and your contribution this afternoon. Basil Manuel is with teacher Union Naptosa. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, before we go, on yesterday's poll, we asked you whether you are concerned about deep fakes being used to spread misinformation during campaign season. Some 50% of those who voted said they are very worried about this. And today, at the back of our conversation with Roger Jardine, we're asking you whether you think a wealth tax will help solve South Africans South Africa's problems, and you can vote on MoneyWeb's X and LinkedIn pages. Results will be out tomorrow. Thank you very much for tuning in to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Dutuzi Le Ramela Bahaichu. Pula